Welcome to the podcast of Sozo Church. For more information about Sozo, please visit sozosmtx.com. Hello, hello, hello. I hope you guys can hear me. I think I'm going to get a pulpit at some point here. If not, I don't have notes anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Uh, But as Dustin said, Dustin is my best friend. I hope you guys can give it up to him. He is just an amazing, amazing college pastor. Um, About four years ago, on my first trip to San Marcos, maybe my second one, uh, he introduced me to to Joel. Um, We ate at the Mediterranean Cafe right there. Um, And that kind of began a journey where I I met Joel. Steve took me to a Texas State football game that I don't think we won. but that's not, a, that's not a hard thing to guess. I'm just assuming we, we probably didn't win. Um, and, and since then, uh, I, I moved down uh, about a year later. I could really sense that God was doing something here. And uh, it has just been such a blessed time for me. Uh, you guys, I wanna thank you all as a family, but also uh, Joel and Steve and Lisa and Lauren and Natalie and uh, Kenny and Diane and so many of the couples and families of this church who have... Um, who have just accepted me with open arms. Uh, this is what family looks like. Uh, and when we're, we're living together as family, sons and daughters really get to be who they're called to be. So I uh, just wanna thank you guys so much. Uh, I spent the last week with my family. Uh, it kind of sounds like a, a reality TV show. It was my family, so a black family from Houston on 100 or 1,700 acres of raw land for four days uh, and we had to survive. My sisters don't even like to walk through grass. Um, so I spent uh, Tuesday through Friday with my family. It was an awesome time. Um, we, it was actually great. We were like on this big hunting lodge. We sh- went, had a shooting range on it. We like fished. It was a great time. Uh, my pa- my uh, family's actually from the Houston area. Uh, my parents are, are pastors there. My mom is just uh, the perfect woman. Can't have asked for a better mother. And she is just a powerful, uh, powerful preacher. She's actually the senior pastor of uh, our church. My dad stepped down a couple years ago. He just turned seven. Uh, this week, he had me uh, a, a little bit older in age, and uh, he is the executive pastor, kind of a community organizer. Uh, he pulls a lot of strings uh, in the cities. I love both of them so much, and that is where I came out of. So I'm sure some of you guys, like when you heard that, yeah, clearly I'm black, that my parents are pastors, immediately you kind of get that vision where it's like, <laughs> right? And I'm like in a robe. A little Jared's in a robe, like singing. There's an organ in the background. Um, yeah, it wasn't like that at all. Not at all. Uh, I come from a contemporary church background. Uh, but from time to time, uh, we could preach. My, mo- my mom could preach. My dad could preach. We can get excited. It's still kind of deep down in the roots. And, and I- I'm not planning on today, but I may start uh, to preach. I might just get a little bit excited. I might get a little excited. So I want to make sure we're ready because I don't want you to get caught off guard. I want us all to be ready. So all together on three, I want us to say, preach it. Just real, just firm. I want you to put the bass in your voice or or whatever you got. And we're all just going to say, preach it together because I want to make sure that we're all ready. All right. So even if you're at home, we welcome you on three. One, two, three. Preach it. That was solid. That was solid. For a room, that's a little light on melanin. You guys, you guys brought it. You guys brought it. Um, well, well, today I want to take you all through the story of David. 
he is just one of the preeminent uh, figures of scripture. Like everyone loves David. Uh, he's probably the second most well-known biblical uh, character outside of the person of Jesus. And, 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 and he kind of has this aura around him. He's this warrior poet type. Uh, everyone talks about the Psalms and obviously he's in Granite in Florence, Italy. He is just this figure uh, that, that, that even uh, surpasses Christianity in a sense. But what we often don't realize is that David is also kind of this wounded warrior. Because just like you and I, David is a human. He went through life. And if we're all probably honest with each other today, life, life can be kind of hard sometimes, right? Am I the only person that, in here that believes that life can be a little bit hard? Life can give you some lickings and you may not keep on ticket, right? Like life can be difficult. And David actually experienced that. And, and throughout life, he picked up a couple of wounds that I want to look at that I think that we also tend to pick up throughout life. So the story of David, I'm going to paraphrase a large portion of it, but it starts in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And it's interesting because the story of David doesn't really start with David. It kind of starts with Saul. Saul is the first king. He's tall. He's strapping. Uh, uh, but, but at some point, God decides this is not working out. You know, he has one of those conversations like this is not working out. It's you. It's not me. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find a new king. So he sets out to do just that. And he, and he uh, says, Samuel, go to the house of Jesse. And there you're going to anoint a new king. So Samuel goes, goes about doing that. He gets to Jesse's house and he's like, hey, Jesse, God has sent me here. He said that one of your sons is going to be the next king. Jesse does what any uh, proud dad would do. And he lines up all of his sons. And he's like, there they are. There's all seven of them. And Samuel starts looking throughout. And, and, and he's looking at this one. He's like, man, he looks really really big and strong. And God's like, no, it's not him. You know, I, uh, you look at the heart, but, or you look at the outside, but I look at the heart. He looks at the other, other ones. It's like, nope, not him. Man looks on the outside. I look at the heart. And then uh, he, he realizes, Samuel realizes that the king is not there. The king is not numbered amongst the brothers. So, so uh, he, he uh, kind of goes on a limb and he says, Jesse, do you have another son? Jesse's like, well, I do. Uh, his name is David. He's, he's, he's out working. And Sam says, you have to bring him to me right now. I won't even sit down. And until you bring him to me, I need to see him right now. So David walks up. He sees his brothers there. He sees his dad. All of this is kind of news to him. And he sees uh, Samuel there. And then it kind of dawns on him. That a man came to his dad, said one of your sons would, would be a king and his own father didn't think that he was worthy of being in the running. That's our, our very first wound. David was forsaken by his father. He was left behind. He was forgotten. He was the unloved one. He was kind of, kind of the one that his dad said, yeah, yeah, all of these are my sons. These are my boys. I am so proud of them. But David, uh, David, we can uh, kind of forget. That doesn't stop Samuel. He says that is the one and he anoints David. 
I think that's a sign to us that should to teach us no matter how far in the back we feel, no matter how forgotten we feel, no matter how lost we feel, no matter how much we feel like man has tried to push us and obscure us and, and leave us in obscurity, that when God has called you, that he will pull you out of obscurity and anoint you to do whatever he has called you to do. So God sends a man to take him out of the pasture and puts him into a position to be king. David continues to live his life uh, as uh, a shepherd, taking care of sheep. And the next chapter over in 1 Samuel chapter 17, uh, we see the story of Goliath, the tall guy, the Philistinian Yao Ming, he has come, he's arrived onto the scene and, and he is threatening and he is talking trash and he is ready to take out all of the Israelites. David isn't there initially, but his dad says, hey, David, why don't you go and deliver some food? And uh, I, am, uh, I want you to go see your brothers and, and, and give them some food. So he does just that. Then David, being the young whippersnapper that he is, he sees the whole Goliath situation and he's like, yo, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who is defying God? And he, and, and, and he starts to ask around, what is the reward? Things like that. And then his own brother hears and sees David and he has this moment where he says, like, wait, wait, wait. Aren't you supposed to be with a sheep? I know your pride and I know your deception, you just wanna see the fight. Ouch, that hurts. David's own brother, the guy who grew up with him in the same house, who should have known David's heart, just completely betrays him in that moment. Just our second wound, David was betrayed by his own brother. Can you imagine the pain? Right there, just innocently wanting to do something for his God and his brother's like, nah, dude, you're prideful, you're deceptive, you're the worst. That doesn't uh, seem to bother David. David goes on and we all know the story. He gets his stones, he knocks out Goliath. And in one of uh, the most disrespectful things I had ever seen, he cuts off the man's head with his own sword. <laughs> his own sword. And, and of course, the crowd goes wild. And that is really the start of, our, of the journey of David of being a famous guy. Now, I need you guys to really understand the gravity of what was happening in David's life at this moment. I mean, the Bible said he was a good looking guy. So he had like the face of a model, but he could fight like Dwayne The Rock Johnson, but he could sing like Bruno Mars. Like this is, if you're, if you're older and that just went completely over your head, he had the face of a model, he fought like Hulk Hogan, but he seemed like Little Richie. Like, like he was just incredible, right? Like he was just super, he was super gifted. He would go home, he would go, wake up in the morning, fight some people, get a victory, and then he would go home and write a new song. Like the dude was so, was so gifted. And he didn't just write any song. He wrote songs that we sing for thousands of years. He'd go home and be like, yo, I have a song tonight. Um, I just finished it in the, in the studio. I think I'm gonna call that one Psalm 7. 
Yeah, yeah, Psalm 7. And people on the streets would be like, yo, did you hear about what God did and what David did, that victory that he had? And they'd be like, no, I haven't heard about that yet, but have you heard Psalms 11? Oh my gosh, that is some super, that is fire. Like, what is this dude doing? He starts gigging, he gigs for Saul. When Saul can't go to sleep, he calls up David. David plays tunes for him. He's like, he's the greatest fighter and a chart-topping artist all at the same time. It's incredible. He's so gifted that they even have a song about him and they say, David, David has killed his 10,000 and Saul has killed his thousands. Saul did not like that song at all. For very clear reasons, Saul did not like that song. And I can only imagine him waking up every morning and just hearing the people in the streets David, David. It was, it, it was just grating on his soul and, and, and destroy, wreaked havoc on his pride. So then in the next chapter, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18, Saul says, I got to do something about this. I got to do something. Um, so he comes up with a contest. He's like, I know I can't kill him out, outright. Everyone loves him. So I need to kind of form a contest here to, so I can kill David. So he comes up with an idea. He says, all right, David, you can have my daughter. The only thing I need you to do is bring me a hundred foreskins of Philistine men. Okay, that's a new one. That's one. I, that's a contest I haven't heard before. I, I know. Have you ever met those people and they're like, um, "I was just born in the wrong era. Like I was born in the wrong year." I'm like, no, 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 no. I I was born at the right time because if my boss came with something like that, like. I need an HR department to go talk to about this, right? Like, I'm going to be in Miss Betty's office eating her M&Ms, filing a written report, asking for a transfer if my boss says something like that to me. But David doesn't seem to be bothered by the fact that Saul has sent him on a death Uh, on on a death journey here, on a death mission. And then Saul's intention was to send him on a journey that would reach his, uh, where he would uh, ensure his utter destruction. David doubles down because the man's wild, and, he, and he, he kills 200 uh, Philistines, and he comes back, and, and, and Saul is like, livid. This was supposed to be the plan that worked, and it didn't. The end of the chapter says, from that day on, uh, Saul became an enemy of David. We hear the stories about how Saul threw spears at David, and for the rest of his life as king, he chases David down in an attempt to make sure that David does not take his throne. The very third wound that we see here is that David was abused by authority. David was abused by authority. Let's take a step back for a second. We've already established that life has this way of wounding us and life has a way of being difficult. But, But let's see kind of the inventory that we have for just a moment. So, so David, uh, was forsaken by his father. He was betrayed by his brother, and he was abused by authority. See what I did there with the letters? I'm working on being a pastor. That's like the biggest thing you have to do when you're working on being a pastor is like, you got to make sure that the letters match. Um, so he was abused by authority. 
Now, the reason why uh, I mention that, the reason why I bring this up is because I think uh, the whole of, of human experience, uh, much human suffering comes from what happens with what? With uh, someone's father or mother or parental figure. What has happened uh, with, your, with your, your siblings or your brothers or your peers or your coworkers, a way that they've talked to you, a way that they've uh, interacted with you that hurts you, that wounded you, or a way that uh, someone in authority has abused you, whether it's um, someone in a leadership position, uh, whether it's a pastor, whether it's um, government or police, whatever it is, uh, so much happens around those people and those types of wounds. And the issue with that is that we actually live out of our, of our hearts. That these wounds come, they, they, they injure our hearts, but our hearts are what we look out, what we live out of, right? Uh, Proverbs said, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. Uh, out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speak that we are what our hearts are. And oftentimes, uh, if, we, uh, if we've endured these wounds, much like if we had an unhealed wound on our body, it becomes an infection. Unhealed wounds in our soul leads to sick souls. And, and the end of that is that we actually uh, become people that instead of having the ability and the capacity to heal others, we hurt others. You may have heard the saying before that hurt people hurt people. And it's crazy when you think of David. At this point in the story, at this point in the narrative, everything is going right for him. He's victorious. He's anointed. He's well-beloved. He has attention. Everyone loves him. And I think oftentimes we're lulled to sleep by the same things. Maybe if I can just get everyone to kind of like me, everyone, at least if I can have the right public persona, if, if, uh, if, if everyone can just maybe see that I'm a good Christian or I'm anointed, then they might not see the fact that deep down inside I'm wounded and I have some things uh, that have hurt me. The truth is, as, I've, as we continue to live these things out, we can't help when we're wounded people, but to hurt and wound others. We see that in the life of David. Let's fast forward to the story of David and Bathsheba. It's a well-known story. Um, David it starts off by saying, on, on a day, or on, on this, in the spring, the season when kings would go out to war, David uh, actually stays home. It's interesting. When kings usually go to war, David stays home. So David, kind of the patriarchal uh, picture uh, of Israel, kind of the guy who's supposed to be fathering the nation for the moment, now forsakes his responsibility. That his own father, years ago as a small kid, left him in a field, and now he's leaving his own shoulders in a field of battle. He goes up on the roof one day and sees Bathsheba, and she is fine, but not his. David seems not to care anyways and has Bathsheba uh, brought to, uh, to his palace and has relations with her. And uh, the issue with that is that not only that she was already married, but she was married to one of David's guys. 
to his married to Uriah the Hittite. He was one of the 33. The 33 were kind of like David's elite force that would run with him, that would fight with him. The guys that he was closest to, the guys who would do anything for David. Now the man who was betrayed by his brothers is now betraying one of his brothers in arms by sleeping with his wife. The story continues. David is like, man, I have to cover this up. I got to solve this situation. His best idea seems like it is hatched just straight out of a Jerry Springer episode. He's like, if I can get Uriah to come back and, and, and be with his wife, then we can just kind of have this like, this, this paternity question around the kid for this, the rest of his life. I can kind of fix this. So Uriah comes and he's like, Uriah, you should spend time with your wife. And Uriah's like, no, I can't. My, all my other guys, my friends are out in battle. I can't do that. I won't do that. David's like doubles down. He's like, I, let's get this guy drunk. Let's get him hammered. And then, he, then he's gonna just lose, lose it. So he tries to get him drunk that night. It doesn't work. Uriah, Uriah drunk is a more noble man than David is sober at this point. And, and he says, I won't do it. I won't leave. I'm, I, he sleeps in front of the castle. He does not go see his wife. And then David says, okay, well, my only option here to have a successful cover-up is I'm gonna have to kill him. So in a military maneuver, um, he makes sure that Uriah is killed in battle. You think it's so interesting that just two chapters or just a few chapters before, uh, David was being sent on a mission that would into his, uh, that should have ended in his utter destruction. Now that he is in the palace, he is sending another man on a mission that ends to his, other, to his utter destruction that the wounds that David had in his heart, the ones that he got from his father, the one that he got from his friends, the ones that he got from authority is now playing out in his life. And David thinks that he's successful. No one knows. No one knows that I, I, have, a, I have kind of a secret baby's mama. I think they called those a love child in the 70s. I don't, I don't know, maybe some of you guys can confirm for me. Uh, he's like, no one knows so he tries to, to, to hide it and just go on with life. But the issue is, is that God saw it. See, after David sent for Bathsheba and he sent for Uriah, God sends him Nathan. Nathan is this uh, prophet and he, he comes to David and he rebukes him. He corrects him, tells him everything that he did wrong. It's kind of a long, a long little paragraph. I don't want to get into it, but he, he comes and he just pronounces uh, God, the, the word of God for David. I find this interesting at this point that David is being corrected. And oftentimes uh, when we are corrected, we're like, oh man, this is bad. This is all bad. I've messed up. I've like really messed up big. And while, while that may be true, the truth is, is that uh, Hebrew says that correction is actually um, a confirmation of sonship. That David uh, was corrected by Nathan because in God's grace, he, want, he still wanted David. He still cared about and loved David. 
You see, a, a, a prophet was sent to David as a child to get him out of a pasture and put him into a position. And then now another prophet has come to David to, to, to realign him with the identity that God has called him to be. You see, because God is too good that he's not going to leave you in the palace even once you made a mess. That, he, that the God that called you uh, out of the pasture will call you out of the mess of the palace that you have created for yourself that he's that good that he will come and pull you out of that situation because he sees you as a son. He sees you as a daughter and more than anything, he cares about you. So David actually responds, well, he, he, he's, a, he's broken before God and in Psalms 51 is, is, is what he pens in the wake of this situation. You can turn there, I'm gonna read like 11 verses. This is Saul, the Psalm of David regarding the time Nathan the prophet came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stains of my sin. Wash me clean of my guilt. Purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right by what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me for my sin, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again, for you have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sin. Remove the stain of guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence, and do not take away your Holy Spirit from me. Renew and create in me a clean heart, O oh God. David here references his own sin in a variety of different ways. He says, God, I need you to save me from my own rebellion. I need you to save me from uh, my waywardness. I need you to save me from evil. I need you to save me from my failure. That something inside of me is actually broken. Something inside of me is out of shape, is, is, is out of position. And he, and, and he starts off by, he's like, God, can you wash me? Can you, can, you, can you cleanse it? And it's almost as if he realized that that wasn't gonna be enough. And he says, create in me a new heart, oh God. That word create is the same word that's used in Genesis 1 for creation, the word bara. God created. It does mean to create, but just like in the Genesis account, uh, when, when God uh, created, he also gave purpose to things. So God didn't just uh, create the sun, but he gave a function to the sun as well. The sun is going to determine night and day. It's going to uh, bring energy to plants. He didn't just um, create um, uh, the rivers and streams. He created them so that they can give life to the things around them. 
And David is saying, that is what I need in my heart. I need someone to come and to bring a function back to the things that are out of place. I need someone to come and bring repurpose the things of my heart and create it completely clean. This was unheard of at the time, a completely renewed, a completely renovated heart. But it shows that this just shouldn't be uh, viewed as um, uh, something that's a prophecy of the gospel, but it is the gospel, that God has always been loving, that God has always been patient, that he's always been kind, that he always would be the one who would send his son. And Jesus came. And he took all of it. He had, he had no waywardness on him. He had no rebellion. He had no evil. He had no anything. Yet he takes on, took on everyone else's sin. And even more than that, he said it so that he would feel what we feel, that he would experience what we experience. On that cross, he says, Father, for, Father why have you forsaken me? Now, Jesus um, was in relationship with the Father throughout. God was absolutely there. If you read Psalms 22, uh, it shows us that this was a a felt experience that God was, that Jesus was allowing himself to feel because if he didn't feel what it was like to be separated and forsaken by a father, he wouldn't be able to say that he identifies with that feeling of humanity. As he's there, he, he looks out. And he's trying to count all of his friends. But he realizes that some of them aren't there. Some of them are missing. That some of the guys he spent three years with washing their feet, doing everything, that they betray him. They said, no, I, 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 can't, I can't do it. I'm done with this guy. And then when he looks up and sees who, who is there, he sees all of the religious leaders He sees the military police. He sees all the governing officials. He sees all the people in authority who are killing an innocent man. You see, Jesus knows what it's like to feel these things. He knows what it's like to be wounded. Just like Dustin said so beautifully a couple of weeks ago, we do not have a high priest who cannot empathize with us but that he got down into the muck. He got down to the feeling he experienced it himself. That is a revolutionary idea. A God who says, I'm gonna save them, but not, uh, not in the most uh, valiant way, but I am gonna take it all on the cross by feeling what they feel, experiencing their pain with them. And he reaches down to lift us up. Jesus feels that he completely understands what it's like to be in that position. If you all could just bow your heads for just a moment. Uh, Jesus knows what it's like. He died and, and, and rose. He's seated with the Father. He, 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 he said, I am the one who is willing to renew your heart. I am the one who is willing to step into those places and into those things that are broken on the inside. 
Like he said, I've been forsaken. I've been forgotten. All those things I feel, I sense. But more than that, Jesus, when he died on the cross, gave us access to the Father. He gives us access to the Trinity. That for those of us who know, who feel the pain of being forsaken by a father through Jesus, you have access to God the Father's love. Today, just invite the love of God to love that pain away, to love that wound away. Jesus himself says, I am the, the, the son, or sorry, I am the friend that sticks more closely than a brother. He says, hey, your friends that hurt you, your coworkers, whatever it is, I'm here. Allow me to love that wound away. That, that the Holy Spirit, who the Bible says, moves in power is here today through Jesus and says, hey, I know you've been abused by authority. I know you have places in your heart that, is, that are hurting. Let me by my power come and heal you. Let me by my power come and love you. Let me touch you in these wounds because I can heal you. I can repurpose you. I can renew your heart. I can restore you to your original creation. Just like I did in Genesis, I can breathe on you and call it good. And when Jesus calls it good, it is good. I'm gonna pray for us in just a moment. Uh, when I say amen, I, I want us all to stand. Nate's gonna lead us in worship. You don't have to worry about getting this, the, the, the songs right or the lyrics right, but just connect with God. Connect with the Father, connect with the Son, connect with the Holy Spirit today. Whatever you need to bring to Him, just, just bring to Him with open arms. Just lift it up today, and I believe that God is going to meet you there. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you, Jesus, for your work on the cross. We thank you that we have a high priest who identifies with us. We thank you that by your power that we can be healed, that we can be renewed, that we can be uh, free. Right now, we just break off every chain of bondage, every, every festering wound that's been years and years and years will be healed today. That Jesus will step in and heal us. We invite you, Father, we invite you Jesus, we invite you, Holy Spirit, into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship.